It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, composer, label founder, and antibolist trumpeter, Jordan McLean. Because of this record, I've had a chance to talk with people all over the world who've you know, spent good time with Ornette, and the stories that I've heard, they, they reinforce entirely my experience. I mean, he is, people say that, uh, that Charlie Parker the Bird was psychic. I mean, Ornette is psychic. You know, this, just from like coming to me in dreams to nonverbal communication to musical communication, and you know, where the conversation starts is pretty, is pretty reliable. Where it goes is completely unpredictable. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Leave comments for us there or email us at fun to know podcast, always with the numeral two, at gmail.com. And I'm still campaigning for some reviews on iTunes. On today's show, composer, trumpeter, and co-founder of the system dialing record label, Jordan McLean. I've long been a fan of Antibalus, the Brooklyn Afrobeat band that took the lead in repopularizing the classic sound of Fela Kuti's revolutionary music beginning in the late 90s. Antibalus' success and McLean's probing playing have presented a lot of musical opportunities for the trumpeter, including collaborations with David Byrne, Daptone producer Mark Ronson, The Roots, St. Vincent, TV on the Radio, and Valerie June, among others. But it was his collaboration with jazz legend Ornette Coleman that led to this discussion. In 2009, McLean, Amir Zeev, and Adam Holzman, partners in the band Droid, worked together with Ornette on a series of recordings that would be released late in 2014 under the title New Vocabulary. The recordings brought Coleman's saxophone into soundscapes unlike anything he'd recorded over his 40-odd year career. I've heard a few jazz purists complain, but there's... Certainly nothing new when it comes to the music of Ornette, and I found the record to be hugely enjoyable, and not just for another rare chance to hear the octogenarian blow his horn. After exchanging emails with McLean, it turned out he was going to be in the Fun to Know podcast's home base of Philly in mid-May, and he generously agreed to stop by during his vacation to talk. I found McLean to be an exceedingly earnest gentleman, and we hit it off with a great free-flowing conversation. This past Wednesday, I was just in the process of locking down the show's mix when I ran across a piece in Rolling Stone reporting that Ornette had filed a federal lawsuit against distribution of the new vocabulary recording, claiming he had no knowledge of its production or release. System Dialing came back the following day with this statement reported by NPR. Quote, New Vocabulary is a collaborative joint work by professional musicians Jordan McLean, Amir Zeev, and Ornette Coleman made with the willing involvement of each artist. The album is the end result of multiple, deliberate, and dedicated recording sessions done with the willing participation and consent of Mr. Coleman and the other performers. Any suggestion to the contrary is unfounded, and we deny any allegations of wrongdoing. Unquote. We wish McLean the best in getting this issue straightened out. While we made the decision here not to feature the new vocabulary recordings, despite their still being available through System Dialing's website. McLean has a seeming ocean of varied music to draw from anyway, and you'll hear excerpts of his work with Antibalus, Droid, his solo trumpet and electronic project World Gone Mad, and McLean's piano music and song trio. Over the course of our discussion, we talk about McLean's NYC education, the early years of Antibalus, Lily Tomlin, McLean's time spent playing with the groundbreaking Tony Award-winning Broadway play Fela, a drama set during Fela's last show at his legendary Nigerian nightclub, The Shrine, as well as McLean's collaboration with the great Ornette Coleman. Apologies to Amir Zeev for my rampant mispronunciation of his name. Now let's head over to the conversation. I was almost worried for you reading through all your credits. You must be on the edge of exhaustion with all the things that you've done over the last 15 years. I've settled into it. <laughs> you look relatively it. healthy. <laughs> I'm here with New York trumpeter Jordan McLean, perhaps best known for playing a very earthy and searching sound on his horn with the modern Afrobeat band Antibalus, but that credit alone doesn't begin to capture the breadth and depth of his talent. 
His credits include collaborations with a wide range of artists, including Angelique Joe to Paul Simon, The Roots, Iron and Wine, Chic, Patti Smith, Medeski Martin and Wood, as well as leading the band in the Broadway hit Fela. McLean also leads a number of musical projects, including Droid, a project with Amir Zev, and Adam Holzman, and the members of this group have released an album called New Vocabulary, the first new studio project from American icon Ornette Coleman in 20 years. New Vocabulary's self-titled recording is available exclusively through the website of the label System Dialing, a label co-founded by Jordan McLean. And it is such a pleasure to be here at the kitchen table. Uh, so it was. It was. The, I've been aware of uh, Antibalas for years. I mean, one of the uh, the great live acts now touring these days. Uh, an incredible band that has reawakened the the uh, music of Afrobeat to the to the world in a lot of ways. The the project that really caught my attention was just a few weeks ago. A guy in a record store said, "Hey, did you hear Ornette Coleman released a new album?" And I thought, "How could Ornette Coleman have snuck out a new album past me?" But investigated more, and yeah, it was a very quietly released record through. Uh, the system dialing uh, label. Can you tell me? Uh, well, you're uh, not the only one to uh, feel like it was snuck by you. This has <laughs> certainly been um, the most grassroots endeavor that uh, um, I'm sure um, uh, Ornette's been involved in in a long, long time, if if ever. There's a lot of uh, you know, music that kind of uh, wants to say that it's an event, but for, for me, the, a newer and a Coleman record is a is a major event. And like I said, 20 years. I, I, I bought both the uh, the records he came out with in Verve back in 94 or 95. Uh, the uh, Sound Museum yeah. records, yes. With Jerry Allen on piano. I love that. The three women version. Uh, Sound Museum was... Um, two records of the exact same songs, different versions, except uh, each record had a different in, uh, vocal track. Um, but the Three Women Museum, uh, the Three Women record of the, of the Sound Museum band was, I think, one of the great jazz records of the 1990s. Oh, yeah. A really under-recognized release, I think. Yeah, and uh, Ornette is, uh, is one of those musicians for me who's never really taken a, a, a bad step. Time has, uh, has really looked uh, kindly on uh, all the changes he'd been through throughout his career throughout his career and to suddenly find uh, yet another trick up his sleeve now 20 years later for me uh well you know he, he would he would correct you or anyone um who calls us an ornette coleman release uh-huh. you know as soon as we had started talking with him about the potential for releasing this music he said no this is a band record this is not an ornette coleman release this is not an ornette record this is a band record so we try to be consistent in in that message and sure. not, you know not lead people on first of all you know his name is in the credits alphabetical uh or you know just it, it, it's it's he's credited equally uh among the other musicians in the in the project which is also something that he was you know very clear about so this is yeah. not an ordinary record this is a band record. and i and i wouldn't want to overlook the the contributions from uh, the other players too i mean it, it's it is certainly a, a uh, group sound you know it, it is merely a reflection of the relationship that uh first he and i established and then was then established with uh with amir uh, amir Zeev, who who played uh drums and and uh was the masterful engineer on those sessions and uh you know who also contributed um so many compositional directions, if if only through his playing and the layering of, of his percussion, uh, as well. So yeah, it's um, but you know that's the nature of the music business these days. It's so uh, you know the technology has been democratizing, and uh, so you know there's a, there are just for better or for worse so many more ways for music to get out there. And you know of course the market is glutted now, and you see that uh, in terms of releases and in terms of touring acts. I mean. Uh, you know, just even to go back to Antibalas, you know, our our place in the industry has changed so much because we really were one of the few, uh, you know, big bands that was willing and able to hit the road for however many hundreds of days a year. Yeah, holding together a band that large is a is a you know a, a huge feat <laughs> as as much as anything. You as know? much as anything, yeah. but you know now um, you see it you see it more and you see more and more bands vying for um and fortunately there are more festivals than ever you know there are probably more slots than ever but uh, i think the uh, supply is probably uh, outgrown the demand at this point so you know we are we were just lucky to get a toehold 
um, you know, at a time when when the industry was, you know, before it went through the radical changes that that Napster started. You know, our first release was a forty-five. That's how we got traction. What, what year was that? Uh, Nineteen ninety-eight. Yeah. Um, it was uh, on what is now Daptone, but was Desco Records, and uh, it was a forty-five, and you know, it just went out with other uh, releases in their catalog, and um, at the time. Uh, the Doctaries uh, had uh, been released. Uh, Soul, Soul, Soul Explosion. Explosion. Yeah, that was that was the first record I, I saw from the uh, from, from, from the label. Desco. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, Sharon and Lee Fields had already done recordings uh, for for them, but um, you know, there was interest in the Doctaries, which was not for a, a, a number of reasons not possible, uh, not a viable touring mm-hmm. act. And the, and they had an, an Afrobeat sound. Yeah, that that record was a tribute to to Fela and um you know was a distinct like that that was the afrobeat uh, um, uh endeavor for desco but uh once they started getting offers that they couldn't field um you know gabe roth was able to say well we have another afrobeat band you know check out their 45 and and uh you know we had some uh, a four four song um short album release right after that and you know we were able to kind of capitalize on what people had um started to appreciate it about Desco, but also, you know, because Fela had just passed, of course, when, you know, when, when a genius passes, everybody starts uh, looking back and, and, um, and appreciating in a different light what, what that artist had to contribute. So we were kind of in the right place at the right time to, uh, you know, to bring Fela's music and a, a new wave of Afrobeat to two stages and you know europe was uh, was key in that the uk and and france uh you know were very fast to to pick uh pick up on that so we were able to kind of get our our touring legs under us and and then yeah when did you discover the music i was living in london in 1996 and 1997 and um i met Keziah jones uh who was uh, at the time a legendary street performer in paris and is now you know, I, I forget if he's on Warner or what, but he's a major, um, a major label uh, artist with you know music videos, and he's you know he's big in Europe, and he you know he's got I don't really know how how much Kazai has caught on here, but he's still definitely something of a, a sensation in in Europe. Immensely talented, he's Nigerian born. Anyway, he was just strumming an acoustic guitar on the streets of London, and I happened to have my trumpet. I walked by him, and we wound up jamming in an alley, and he's like, "Hey, I'm, I'm doing a party in a couple of weeks." And, uh, you know, I showed up for a rehearsal and he had done an arrangement of a Fela tune. And uh, so it was like a bunch of Nigerians, a Dutch trombonist and me. And, you know, we <laughs> played played Fela's music and, and I danced to Fela's music all night. And uh, that was that was my introduction. It was a party called the African Anarchists. And it was just a one off thing. But um, a bunch of Nigerian uh, Nigerians living in London had this this big fete. So, uh, yeah, I got. I got turned on to Fela by by a Nigerian, by Kaziah Jones. So that was that was kind of cool. I came back to New York, and um, Antibalas was just starting. Uh, it's interesting, though. I mean, you uh, have had quite the uh, musical education uh, as a, a New York City guy. You're a quintessential New York City musician, I would think. Well, I, I was going to. I was a grade school student in um, in the era of public school bands. Uh, you know, I was given my first trumpet in the fifth grade. Um, in you know on Tenth Avenue and Fifty Third Street, PS One Eleven. You know when schools still had band programs, and uh, you know I went to junior high under a, a pretty well known you know institution um, band director named uh, Michael Pitt um, at Wagner Junior High School, and then I went to high school uh, just outside of the city um, with a now uh, retired legend of of high school music education named Larry Silverman. Uh, Bergen County, you know, like all county band conductor. Um, and uh, I was in the first band that he took to a festivals of music. And, you know, all four years of high school, we competed at festivals of music. And he just retired after 25 years with a hallway full of trophy cases. And I was in that, you know, that that first band. So, um, but uh, in, in this town, Leonia lived uh, Ed Troidel, who was one of the great trumpet teachers of the last 50 years. You know, everybody went to see Ed. Uh, you know, Wynton Marsalis would go to see Ed. John Faddis would go to see Ed. All of New York Phil would go to see Ed. And there I was, you know, 15, like going to see Ed. And so I was just, again, kind of in the right place at the right time. And then um, I was at the Manus uh, 
college before Manus was um, swallowed up by the new school. They had their own jazz department. Manus is a, the classical conservatory of the new school, oh, okay. but they also had their own jazz department. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a very cool few years to be there because it was mostly Europeans coming to um, to study in New York and to play in New York. You know, having uh, Manus kind of be their visa. So I was the youngest kid in the department. Mm-hmm. Um, surrounded by great players from all over Europe and Israel and so were you in the jazz department or you yeah in, I was yeah. in the jazz department and um you know it's where I got introduced to Ornette's music and to, to Sun Ra and you know I played a lot of standards at the time but um you know was probably more interested in avant-garde and soul and 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 funk um what 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 names were you interested in at that time do you think uh well I mean that's when I first got turned on to Albert Eiler and to Ornette and Sun Ra and um, yeah. um but you know Otis Redding became a big part of my life at that point Otis and and Ray Charles so I think combining those factors along with you know a a long love of Duke Ellington um finding Fela's music became like a very natural fit for me um but then you know uh when I was 30 after about 10 years of of working as a freelancing musician uh, I went back to school and did a degree in uh, classical composition at SUNY Purchase which also kind of cemented uh my musical upbringing studying with Ed Troidel and playing classical music in high school and never losing that kind of uh, primal affection for Gustav Mahler and you know then the the great composers of of uh of Western Europe um so uh, you know, I went for for three years to SUNY Purchase and did a degree in classical composition, which I was also able to bring all of my experience in, in avant-garde music and playing Fela's music into composing music that is through composed. Were your were your fellow classical musicians uh, as Catholic in their taste? Um, at at Purchase, um, yeah. as Catholic in their their taste. You know, as wide. You know, again, I was the oldest person in the department at this yeah. point. I was thirty. Everybody else was twenty. Uh, you know, people were <laughs> incredibly talented, and and um, there was a studio comp. There is a studio comp department as well. So you had, you know, uh, great songwriters and hip hop artists, and so there was. A, it was actually a really, uh, a really special department, and and it, it continues to be so. Um, the administration has changed. The head of the composition department has changed since I've been there. So it's got a different timbre now. But but purchase um, is known to be uh, a place where. Um, artists can really mix it up. They have a world-class dance conservatory. I actually wound up working on the Broadway production of Fela with a number of people who had danced at Purchase. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, so uh, in answer to your question, probably not, but, you know, I had over 10 years on everybody, so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you sort of graduated into Antibalis not too long afterwards, I guess? Or? Um, well, uh Pretty much like halfway halfway through being out of school and and going back to school, um, yeah, uh, yeah uh, Antibalas kind of found we all found each other. We, it, we started in 1998, the, the year after Fela's passing. Uh huh. It, it sounds like those early years were were pretty magical in some sort of way. It's funny because we were I was describing some of our early tours. The first time we went to uh, to London, you know, we were invited there by. Um, uh, Big Daddy magazine. I don't know if Big Daddy's still around. They're uh, a hip hop and culture magazine out of Nottingham, and uh, they arranged a bunch of gigs for us. We played at the Jazz Cafe in London. We played in Nottingham. Um, we had a gig in Ascot, which is kind of like a, a country club town. <laughs> um, but we had no place to stay, uh, so we were, you know, crashing with friends and family. But we got there, and it turns out a lot of people were out of town, so. I just I'll never forget being on Portobello Road with 13 people's luggage piled high <laughs> and uh, we actually had a radio show that afternoon and and uh, Martine the the founder of the band made a plea to the listening audience if anybody has a place where we can crash <laughs> and we actually wound up making some really good friends uh, that way but yeah magical is is one way to put it um but really I just I just feel so fortunate for um for just Again, just being in the right place at the right time, you know, and, and the right combination of people. But New York is is kind of magical in that way. Yeah. Still is. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I just read an article today in the paper uh, or in The Guardian. It was about uh, a location scout. Has told he was looking for, uh, you know, those tough, gritty New York blocks where, uh, you know, things are run down and how, like, that New York might not really be there anymore as he was searching around the Bronx and everywhere for it. Well, you know, the Bronx, you'll you'll still find a little bit of that. You have to go way farther out in Brooklyn. Um, 
but yeah, he's probably right. I don't know if there's really anything like that left in Manhattan. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Hell's Kitchen in the in the 80s, and that was the entire neighborhood. Yeah. And uh, you know, now I go back, and uh, our little five-story walk-up building is, just, is surrounded by luxury high-rises. Yeah, you've really. I mean, the, the lifespan of, of Antibalis has really been an incredible change in in your in your home city. Has it ever? I mean, we, you know, our first shows were activist loft parties, and you know, and not to say that this stuff doesn't still happen. You know, young people still make their way to New York and make their scenes, and it just you know the the venues change, mm-hmm. but uh, I think the spirit of it is it's it's still there. It's 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 buried and it's transmorgified in some ways but i think the ideas that um that make new york's great are are still in place yeah you know not to uh not to um contradict patty smith's uh very eloquent surmisal of what's happening in new york but uh, i don't i don't think we can make it happen in detroit quite yet yeah the way <laughs> it, it happened in new york even even in her New York of the 60s and 70s. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because, uh, I mean, uh, maybe this is my own cynical take, but for me, to, I think there would, there'd be a great market for a band that uh, resurrected, you know, the, the, the sounds of Fela Kuti and Afrobeat and then siphoned all the politics out of it and made it a party music. It seems like that would be a really easy path to take. But Antibalis has always been a, a, inherently a very political band. Oh, absolutely. Well, our, our founder, um, Martin Perna, is, uh, you know, he was a, a, a poli-sci major at, at Georgetown, and then he um, he transferred to NYU, and uh, that's where he met Gabe Roth um, of Desco, now Daptone, and uh, Tunde Adabimpe of TV on the Radio. I mean, those those three guys were were housemates. Yeah, I heard the the Antibalos and TV on the Radio and the and the Daptones all came out of the same apartment, basically. It's basically, the same NYU dorm. So uh, <laughs> you know, that's that's the kind of alchemy that really still only you know happens in new york or, or certainly at that time anyway but uh no you're right uh, but martin's an inherently political person um and uh as am i you know i've uh, i'm very thankful for the uh number of political rants i've been allowed on stage uh you know i try not to uh, i try to keep it short and and keep it light but also make sure to inject enough paranoia into it too uh, I, w- I wasn't bringing this up to cut yeah. you off i was i was just looking at an interview recently with you where you know you made one statement about capitalism and it seemed like it was time to move on you know to the next question oh right well no i think it's time to move on from capitalism frankly <laughs> but uh it's it's still uh, it's got its rusty nails dug in to uh to the whole the whole darn ecosystem at this point. But uh, I've read once where socialism failed because it didn't tell the economic truth about the system, and whereas capitalism is doomed to fail because it doesn't tell the ecological truth. Yeah. And I, I think capitalism is, is predicated on so many unsustainable factors at this point that, uh, hey, I mean, even what, uh, I forget what, uh, what intergovernmental agency that is um, charged with um, monitoring the state of our democracy mm-hmm. has declared um, this, is, this is sometime this year in 2015 has declared we're no longer categorically a democracy. We're now a capitalist oligarchy. Yeah. Uh, so. uh, just today, the story broke that the FBI 
has been spying on uh, the XL pipeline protesters. Ah. You know, and the fact that our, our government would take that on its uh, on its plate as being something of their job is pretty pretty horrifying. Right. Well, that's um, I guess that's the, the the money is still too big to pass up for people to uh, to let go of XL. You know, that seems like uh, a disaster waiting to happen yeah. but there just might be too much money involved um you know i do as uh, as much criticism as we can all levy at the president I, I i do appreciate his having taken a a stance against xl and at least keep kept having kept it at bay for his administration yeah yeah but anyway yeah we um antibalas would not be the same if we had if we had siphoned the politics out and i th- i think um i don't think we would have been given as much credit um by our early supporters, you know, by the people who came out to dance to the music so regularly, I think it, it probably would have felt a little vapid without without the uh, the political charge. Yeah, um, I, I think at the, at the the rise of the Bush administration and everything too, that you know there was there was a, a time to really talk about politics. It, it it's it's true. We we probably were were the band to uh, to at least do it in the way that we did it at that time. I mean, you know, there's certainly plenty of more high-profile high musical acts who are um, very political, and and uh, you know that's I, th- I think it's really important. But um, you know we uh, we did we do our thing in our way, and we still um, you know we still I think we've probably become uh, somehow more in in our um, I don't want to say we've mellowed with 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 age, but I think uh, our maturation has uh, led us more to a um, kind of a humanistic. Uh, and and metaphysical message rather than overtly political one mm-hmm. um, you know the songwriting has become uh more allegorical and uh almost more um more like fantasy and and fiction and uh and storytelling than uh, overt uh political rhetoric um which which i love i, I think the direction of the band has actually been a really natural evolution music and message in hand kind of maturing over a better part of uh, 18 years now. Yeah, well, that's been interesting, too, is, is uh, I mean, that's sort of the, the question for me when first hearing the, the early Antibalas records was, you know, where where can they take this? And uh, the band has really done a great job of maturing and evolving and, and bringing together other other influences and natural, you know, streams that would uh, come through the music. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. On behalf of the whole band, I, I, I thank you. Um, and it's, it's funny because it's just... Uh, it's such a special group of people. The core of the band is really, um, you know, so many members have come and gone. You know, myself and the founder and our lead singer, Amayo, are the three longest standing members at this point. But, you know, to to know Amayo and Martine is to, I mean, I, I feel so fortunate for these relationships. They're such deeply good people, sweet, caring people with remarkable senses of humor so smart i mean you know martine is one of the most um self-educated and dynamic uh self-starting go-getters i've ever known and uh and amayo is just is really like to know amayo is to love him and people can't believe without revealing too much about his age how how many years he has spent doing what he does on so many levels you know from from being a, a kung fu sifu to you know, being a fashion designer to being a a, a really brilliant uh, songwriter and stage uh, you know, his stage presence aside you know his front man skills aside he has become one of the most remarkable uh, Afrobeat composers out there and we've only really just heard the beginning of his his music he's been composing now for well over 10 years uh, his own brand of afrobeat with his foo orchestra um and uh that music is still yet to really hit the light of day and once it does i think people will realize that like this guy is he's he's for me after fela he's kind of the afrobeat composer mm-hmm. and he actually uh, had a direct connection he'd actually been to the shrine and oh sure he was he was you know like a not quite an area boy but he was definitely like one of the punk kids hanging out at the shrine who are too young to be there <laughs> that's amazing and, yeah. and uh, i mean the play really you know further sort of makes that place uh, stand out as a, a sort of legendary you know uh, almost mystical space in which uh, his music was made you know i i wasn't able to go when the uh, the show went to nigeria um 
a couple of us had had other uh, commitments, so I wasn't able to go to Nigeria. But um, you know, to hear everybody from the musical who went and performed at the shrine uh, talk about mystical. I mean, it's just even for the most kind of uh, cynical members of that ensemble, it, it I think it stands out as one of the more profound performance experiences and overall just like trips of of their their lives. But yeah, we did. I think we did pretty well. To um, I mean, Bill T. Jones is is uh, such a visionary. So um, you know, I think he he and we did really well to at least bring some of, if not some of the m- magic from the shrine itself, at least enough of our own mojo to mirror the magic mm-hmm. of the shrine. And you know, we had the, we had the most incredible leading man. I mean, really, the only person I can possibly conceive of who could have created that role and brought Fela to life so tell, tell me a little about him he's from Amsterdam uh, San Gaujo is actually uh, he, he was he's born in the States um, um, but uh, um, is of uh, uh, Sierra Leonean descent mm-hmm. and still has family there and travels there regularly um, but no he, he did his theater training in Amsterdam okay yeah, yeah um, as a uh, actually as a, a director he's really quite a brilliant artist in his own his own right besides his his you know singing and dancing chops yeah, um, yeah. but you know he does network tv spots now i mean he's you know he's uh he's on the blacklist he, he was on a show a couple of years ago on cbs so he's got real he's got real charisma he's, Hear, he's, hearing about his performance i, I really th- i really imagined him as you know almost being that character i, I wasn't even thinking of, of that it was an actor in the role i thought like he's going to be Fela Cudi Jr. for the rest of his life or something. But yeah, pretty, you know, highly trained, talented actor. Yeah, which is, uh, you know, Saw went for it um, in his audition. You know, he said, oh, I'm, I'm auditioning for Fela here. And he walked into the audition in his underwear. I mean, you know, like he just, <laughs> he was the person for it. Also, he, he grew up. He married like, five women on the way. Yeah, in. exactly. Yeah. No, he, but he also, you know, his, to talk with him about it, his, uh, he learned to sing by listening to Fela records, which is why when he sings, it's, he sounds more like Fela than anybody I've ever heard still. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in a way, he was really just the the only person who could take that show from dance theater workshops to, you know, whatever, 12 Tony nominations. What, what was your experience uh, surging forward with that band uh, every night, night after night? It was... Uh... It was a heck of a lot of fun. I mean, I, I like doing the same show every night because um, it's just it's like a, a measure of, of musicianship. You know, how can I stay fresh? How can I stay focused and, and you know, be play there. these parts and really yeah. just be in the moment? You know, I, I, I think that's a very cool thing about live theater is that you, your job is to pretend that this thing is happening for the first time right now. So uh, I appreciated that experience a lot. I loved, um, you know, working in an old Broadway theater. I mean, what could be more fun than that? You know, it was, there were wild times. It was a really cool group of people. And it seemed like it must have drawn a lot of fascinating people through the theater, too. Oh, that's for sure. I mean, certainly people who would never go to a Broadway show. Um, you know, we had so many icons of music. Too. Who, who did you get to meet that you really appreciated? Uh, the f- the first person who I who I mean I, I grew up listening to Lily Tomlin comedy records. I saw Lily Tomlin on Broadway as a kid, you know. So I heard she was in the theater one night, and I just ran up. I put my arms around her. I gave somebody my phone to take a picture. I still have a picture of Lily Tom me hugging Lily Tomlin and her looking scared and, and surprised and like who what is going on here? Who is this? She's an amazing figure. Oh my god! A big, I, I, a big uh, you know excitement of my youth watching her on Laugh In and all that. Oh, stuff. exactly. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I worship Lily Tomlin as a as a comedian as a performer and what a beautiful person too um but you know hey meeting ornette was um god you know that's i'm not really everybody everybody else who whoever you know who came through the theater with all due respect and you know however many icons from stevie wonder to prince to bruce springsteen to madonna to sting to you know everybody who came through to that show Nice to meet you and all, but you know, <laughs> I'm not ready to let that that story go. I'm, when I when I'm, I knew Ornette was there, yeah, when cu- I knew Ornette was there, I ran, <laughs> I ran down the block. He actually came off Broadway. Um, he came he came opening night on Broadway also, but you know oh. we met off Broadway, and I ran a full avenue block in my costume to make sure that he had not. <laughs> left and i got back and he was still up in the balcony you know hanging out with the band i said all right that's cool i just wanted to make sure that i didn't miss him
for, I mean, for me, I mean, that, he's one of those figures that, you know, I've listened to so much of his music that, that uh, you know, in some, I feel like in some really concrete way, I know him and he's a person in my life. Mm. Um, he's, uh, he's so expressive as a, as a composer and as an instrumentalist. Um, to me, uh, I, I'm very curious what your, your, your brainstorming with, uh, m- you know, musically with Ornette Coleman was really like. I just went in um, with open ears, hoping to, um, God, not even to necessarily cop anything, because that's never really been my um, my way of learning. Uh, I do enjoy analysis quite a bit, compositionally, as a composition major, as a composer. That's kind of been, to me, the, the best way to get inside of a musical mind. Um, so, you know, I've transcribed his compositions. I understand to a degree what that sound um you know where that sound comes from as an improviser i never went in there trying to you know play like ornette i just wanted to bring also i'd had enough experience doing what i do to glean early enough on that maybe i can do something that would just support what he does that our sounds can actually blend rather than me thinking like oh i'm gonna like find out how ornette plays like ornette yeah, yeah. You, know, you I mean, can you can do that any any which way. You know? I, I hesitate to even bring this up, but you are sort of standing in the position of a, of a, a longtime trumpeter that was his side man for years. I mean, that, Don Cherry is one of his major collaborators. A, absolutely, and, and yeah. you know, I, and I I love Don's playing to the, you know. To I love everything about Don. I mean, yeah, oh, just yeah. an amazing spirit. Yeah. Truly, truly. So, uh, and you know, so I'm certainly not going to go in there thinking like, all right, I'm going to like play like Don to you know to stand along <laughs> and play with Ornette. You know, that's that's totally jive. Um, we started mostly, uh, I was actually playing a lot of keyboards. You know, he had a, you know, this like a so busted Casio keyboard. So I would just play a lot of, uh, like left hand bass. It's like walking bass. Honestly, as much as anything, I was just trying to like play like Charlie for him, you know, but like on a, on a, on a keyboard, like Charlie Hayden that is. Um, and you know, so I would just kind of play keys and, you know, hear where he was at at that point. So, you know, he was, he was 79 80 when we were first starting to play together so you know it's not like uh it was 1959 or anything i mean he plays a lot different i mean he plays uh you know he he, he played like um like like an advanced advanced uh it was it was almost uh, a, a distilled crystalline simplified exactly sound exactly for me it's sort of like i i know so much now i, I don't have to play all the notes i can just play the right ones and, and you know it's really as much as anything for him it's um he, he he said even if you're playing a whole long run of notes that's a sound one pitch can be a sound a 20 note run can be a sound yeah it's um so that was that was informative you know and I, I went back and i would i would like you know transcribe things that we'd played together so i kind of knew where he was going with certain things but honestly i was just trying to be present in our conversation you know that to me was is the thing that people really miss you said something really interesting about you know listening to him so much you feel like you know him and i had that feeling too and then in uh, i think it was about 2004 there was a big new york times article on him and I, got, I was really excited to see this like big culture piece in the Times. And I read it and I thought, I don't know anything more about Ornette. Like this, it was actually kind of disappointing. I thought, wow, is Ornette like kind of just like an aloof dude? Is he not like all that cool? <laughs> and I think it's just that, you know, in, in all due respect, is I actually don't know who wrote that article, who, you know, got to spend three days with him interviewing him. But it did nothing. And I don't know what is out there that does anything to really bring Ornette to a reader yeah, yeah i think you're you're much better off as a listener trying to understand him and and his his soul the essence of his humanity as a listener or to to talk with people who've spent other artists who have spent time with him you know just because of this record i've had a chance to talk with people all over the world who've you know spent good time with ornette and the stories that i've heard are they they reinforce entirely my experience i mean he is People said that uh, that Charlie Parker the Bird was psychic. I mean, Ornette is psychic. The, you know, just just from like coming to me in dreams to nonverbal communication to musical communication to and also just to like kind of um, getting the underlying meanings in in what he's talking about. He's uh, he's kind of a cipher in a way. Like he he has a um, th- he, he has a few core ideas. And then he spins out in kind of infinite variation from these few core ideas. 
and you know where the conversation starts is pretty is pretty reliable where it goes is completely unpredictable and so you know the, the uh, like we would really I, I feel like we really got to know each other because i was able to sit and listen for so long and really you know with with no determination of the outcome i was just listening so i, I developed an intuitive understanding about what he was saying and then i would you know, kind of come with my own feedback and own ideas. And, and he'd say, man, I never thought about it like that. Or, you know, he really liked being, I think most people who would go and hang out with him would just kind of nod their head. Yes. And like kind of tune out because he's, he's a prolific talker. No, really? That, that, that isn't, uh, I haven't gotten the sense of him being chatty, but he's, he's kind of chatty. Huh? He, well, f- chatty in, in, in the conventional sense is that he, he's a true, um, host he's a southern gentleman comes in you know he just wants to know how you're doing you know what can i get you and you know just a really tremendous host and then when you sit down and you get into it i mean you you have to be ready to be in there for a couple of hours because he's he's got a lot to put out there so um yeah so i think that's it's not really possible to put that into an article yeah 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 um maybe i'll Maybe I'll write a book one day. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's a, uh, there has been a, a series of great quotes that I've heard attributed to him to people that you know have listened to him talk. And oh yeah, I've, I have a number <laughs> at the ready right now, which I won't, I won't even go into because it's really all about context, you know. But I swear there are some things that he said that I mean you just can't believe how funny he is too. A really <laughs> remarkable sense of humor, and uh, you know, and 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 a pure, a pure being, a truly pure being but also you know a, a, like a kind of a you know kind of like a dirty dirty old man too like you know he's got his he's earthy got, side as yes, well yes he's yeah. got his earthy side that's for sure i don't think we would be giving credit to his whole thing if we didn't recognize that he's also like like you know like a man with knees even at his age and it's a beautiful thing to see it really it really is and I think it's totally reflected in his playing too. I mean, you know, let's you know, you can't separate the uh, yeah. that the cry uh-huh. know, from from his otherwise you know immaculate at this point immaculate tone. And it wasn't always like that. I mean, he was you know he's got that that roughness in there. And I appreciate you um, uh, introducing my sound as being earthy. <laughs> well, it, I mean, you're stylistically, uh, you, you know, it's uh, you you are are willing to. Uh, to get in there and and uh, you know I was thinking of the the Ellington trumpeters you know like Bubba Miley or whatever you're you're, ready, you're willing to Goody. slur and oh, uh, and and mumble and and use it as a sound machine not just a clarion call to you know to heaven's gates or something. No, I I appreciate that and it's funny because I don't I don't really um, you know play play licks you know i have an idea of of line and contour and as a as a composer i, I feel um like trumpet is a great vehicle for uh spontaneous composition and to me like sound is as much a part of that as any as anything linear or harmonic you know um sound yeah. encompasses it, it all yeah know? it's true but you know but just those those sounds those, those tones that you're describing are yeah. one of the coolest things about trumpet it's a, it is a very vocal instrument um but uh you know it's also a very at this point a very stylized instrument and that's that's just not interesting to me yeah as a performer hmm. you, you have a solo trumpet record though don't you? uh yeah so um based on uh on the rig that i had put together for um for droid who was you know kind of the in a way the core band for for new vocabulary um uh, I, I put together a, an electronics rig and, and did a solo record of just trumpet and electronics. And uh, World Gone Mad is available on, on system dialing records also. And I have a few LPs left. Otherwise, it's it's in the digital realm now. But um, uh, yeah, just uh, it, it the electronics because um, it's all kind of live manipulation. You know, it's no no loops. It's all just mm-hmm. uh, you know happening happening there through what is in effect a guitar rig. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Moog and and uh, electro harmonics and boss pedals, you know, nothing special. But I think trumpet has such a uh, a wide um, palette that, in combination with these different pedals, like you get sounds that have absolutely nothing to do with the trumpet, but are are more reflective of compositional ideas and just you know sonic uh, sonic realities. Speaking of electronics and trumpet, uh, uh, a name that, that uh, I guess has to come up, Miles Davis. And, yeah. Uh, those 70s records that he made. 
sure. uh, really, uh, you know, created such a wide palette for the idea of trumpet and electronic sounds. Yeah, but you know, he Miles really he I, I think in a way he was um, kind of aspiring to to what Jimi Hendrix was doing, which was to not use a lot of pedals. Jimi was doing everything with you know one or two pedals, and then everything with the instrument itself. Mm-hmm. Miles didn't really use more than an octaver and a wah wah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of cool for anybody who wants to come along after Miles. There actually was not. I think there's much more to get past Miles on on the instrument itself. Like Miles said about Louis Armstrong, you don't play anything that Pops didn't already play. Mm-hmm. Like as a trumpet player in in this, you know, in in as an improvising trumpet player, you don't really ever play anything that <laughs> does not is not somehow affected by by Miles. I mean, he's yeah, that huge yeah. on the instrument. Um, in some ways, the the most you know, exciting and, and biggest uh, element of his, his whole bag of tricks was as a, as a band leader pulling together uh, band members. Oh, that, ab- absolutely. Also uh, one of his, definitely one of his, his genius uh, talents, but he, I think he actually left the door wide open for trumpet and electronics because he only used, I don't use a wah-wah and I only use the octaver in tandem with, with other pedals. But, you know, when you listen to Jack Johnson and on the corner and, and, uh, Actually, he wasn't even really using pedals, pedals on Bitches Brew, but everything from on the corner after. Um, but it's really like just some very basic equipment. So he left the door open to a whole host. And also, you know, since his since he put the horn down and since he passed, there's been such a, a jump in the, the, you know, the evolution of the technology. So there's all these all this gear that was not available to him. Mm-hmm. Um, actually just made a, a duo record with with Amir. Um, under the uh, the name Directors, which is going to be coming out sometime in the next year, um, where I'm using all, uh, just Eventide pedals, which is a you know it's like a boutique uh, digital mm. uh, effects manufacturer, and I mean their gear is wild. I've never used anything like it, and you know certainly Miles didn't have access to anything like that. <laughs> so you know when it comes to, to trumpet and electronics, he actually he he opened the door for us. And then, you know, he didn't even really step foot inside. He just opened the <laughs> Stepped door. Stepped out of the way. Yeah. He did. So that's, so that's kind of cool. I, don't, I, feel, um, I don't feel obliged to him when using the electronics. You know, yeah. in most other contexts playing the trumpet, you know, I feel tremendously obliged to him. <laughs> even, even in playing Afrobeat, you know. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Uh, Miles' sense of line, like, comes to me regularly while, while – playing you know featured solos and stuff with with antibalas and on fela tunes yeah, yeah it's like a voice you can't get out of your head in some ways. yeah and, and it's fine yeah. i mean you know i don't know i would be uh it would be disingenuous <laughs> to say that he's not indelibly <laughs> marked on my cortex You mentioned Amir Zev. I wonder if you could tell me a little more about him. He's your partner in, in Droid and also in the uh, in the in the new vocabulary project. That's right. So he and I started um, System Dialing Records uh, about five years ago. We were Sound Chemistry Records and became System Dialing Records. Uh, he and I have been friends and collaborators in one way or another for almost twenty years now. Um, and uh, yeah, we we started Droid in in nineteen ninety eight. Actually, same year as Antivalis, and we had a. Where did you two be? We met just on the Lower East Side. Uh, he was at the New School, and uh, some of his friends and housemates were at Manus. And um, 
you know, it's this whole kind of uh, Israeli connection and, um, you know, just friends of friends. It's, you know, any way you meet anybody in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just started jamming and I was putting bands together and we were rehearsing and doing gigs. And and then uh, actually Droid came from the senior recital at the new school of our keyboard player at the time, Adam, um, Adam Butler. Uh, who the three of us co-produced that first Droid record with Tim LaFave, who's, you know, uh, anybody who plays the electric bass knows Tim LaFave. If you play bass or drums, you probably know who Tim LaFave is because he's really, he's such a force. He's been playing with the Tedeschi Trucks band for uh, for some time now, but longtime Wayne Krantz bass player, uh, Jojo Meyer. He pretty much invented the, the live drum and bass scene uh, with a, a drummer named Zach Danzinger. This is going back, again, almost 20 years ago. So uh, LaFave... Uh, Adam Butler, Amir, and myself were were droid, and um, yeah, it, like I said, it actually kind of came together because of this this one new school recital, and we kept it going. And this uh, live drum and bass scene was was really pumping uh, Lower East Side, you know, late late nineties, early two thousands, and uh, yeah, we kept droid going until until last year. I think two thousand fourteen was the first year since nineteen ninety eight the droid did not do a concert, and that was kind of my own you know, my, my choice to, you know, try to move, move past that sound a little bit and, uh, you know, focus on, on getting new vocabulary out and, and focus a little more on what Amir and I are doing with directors. Um, Amir is a, uh, he's the primary drum faculty at the new school. He's got, you know, at this point, hundreds of students over the last 10 plus years who've come through his, his program. Uh, he was a graduate of the new school and then went right into teaching there. He's worked with one of my favorites too, uh, Ciro Baptista. Oh, he was, he was the, uh, the drum kit player in Ciro Baptista's uh, Beat the Donkey for, mm. for years for a, a good portion of their, their touring life. And uh, he and, and Ciro and Billy Martin have a, a band now called uh, Beat Masters. And uh, that will be a record on System Dialing Records uh, sometime in the next, you know, year or two. Um, but they just did uh, another concert in, in Williamsburg a few weeks ago that was tremendous. Um, so, uh, yeah, Amir just continues to innovate as a as a drum kit player, but also as a um, uh, in expanding the, the kit to include uh, percussion. He's commissioned um, a large uh, number of... Um, different metallic instruments uh to kind of supplement the drum set from um everything from maybe you know one foot to four and a half foot cowbells um all you know kind of uh indeterminate pitch um you know he's he's built himself countless metallic instruments he he uses uh um uh all kinds of uh also drums from antiquity, you know, like uh, Revolutionary War field snares, Brazilian caixas, all different kinds of Brazilian snares. He has a, uh, you know, like a Baroque kettle drum that he puts in the kit. So, you know, he's also actually in a way kind of out of the Sonny Greer, uh, Baby Dodds school of like having the drum kit be an orchestra. Yeah, and yeah. he actually has a solo record on, on system dialing called Timpanum, which is just a solo drum set record. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Amir is he's one of these... Uh, scary chops guys who doesn't hit you over the head with his chops yeah um you know his students really revere him for his technique i mean his his technique is impeccable but that's not why he's such a great drummer and and he you know he's he's so happy to play as quiet as you can imagine a drum set player or a, a, a percussionist can play and also has you know no fear in in just in, in you know having it be heard for a mile around and and everything in between so it's it's he's a thrill to work with and he also is one of the the genuinely sweetest human beings you ever want to meet yeah. for for me one of the uh, the things as a jazz fan that, that that really impresses me with musicianship is when you you see uh, improvisations going on and then one of the the musicians steps out altogether and says oh there's not a place for me here I'm gonna step out like oh, that's a real yeah. musician like yeah. he's not playing at all no it's all it's all in the spaces for sure and he does that so beautifully on new vocabulary and and uh and um yeah i think uh there's a lot to uh there's a lot a lot to that and 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 um you know giving each other that space is uh i don't know i mean that, that might be one of the biggest differences in having you know in being an effectual musician and just being a um a reciter of facts yeah yeah uh, you mentioned system dialing a few times and that's really a whole Different direction. You're a, you're the the head of a label. You're the the Jack Holzman of uh, system dialing. And it's funny you mentioned Jack because you know Adam was you know uh, Adam Holzman is is Jack's uh, uh, firstborn son, and um, Jack was instrumental in in uh, 
in, in providing us inspiration at the beginning yeah. of and, you know, the, and the founder of Electro Records, yeah, the founder of Electro Records, and yeah. and um, and the author of a really wonderful music bi- uh, autobiography called uh, Follow the Music. It's one of the the coolest musical autobiographies I've ever read because it's actually in dialogue. Uh, it's not just um, you know uh, prose or whatever. You know, it's not just yeah. like a written autobiography. It's actually a dialogue between him and everybody who's 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 left to talk about that time. You're, you're not the only one to mention that. I know that's a very highly regarded biography. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. And, and and you know we we actually put together our studio based on Jack's first studio, which was a um, at, at the time for him it was a state of the art reel to reel machine that he would put on the back of his moped and bring it around to wherever the artists felt comfortable. Judy Collins didn't want to go into a studio and say, hey, where do you feel comfortable making this record? At the Village Gate or in this church? So he would bring the rig there. Wow. So our, our MRU, the Mobile Recording Unit, is actually um, uh, kind of constructed a- out of that model of having, having it be something where we can, bring, we can bring it to the artist rather than having to have the artist come to us. Mm-hmm. So what 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 are your what's your vision for for a label? What what labels have you have you loved over the years? Well, I, I'm a, I'm a sucker, so you know I I was I was kind of raised on Prestige and and Blue Note and uh, ECM certainly. Um, uh, ECM is probably for me the still like the uh, covers the most ground just conceptually and and um, you know what they what they capture sonically to me ECM is just <clears throat> doesn't really get much better and I, I actually I'll, I'm completely biased obviously but I, I do listening back to some system dialing records think like oh okay that's like we're, we're getting it's capturing the same feeling for me so you know if I can get halfway there then uh, I'm happy and I think we actually get more than halfway there on, on some of our records so um, but yeah I mean hey Electra you, you know they're just <laughs> everything they did from you know from capturing s- movements before they were movements yeah. You know, Jack was really w- way ahead, so you know, of course, he's a, a big inspiration, also. But um, uh, who do you have on your roster these days? Well, it, you know, it started mostly as just a vehicle for um, releasing the music that Amir and I uh, are making. We're making, um, but the uh, the record right before New Vocabulary, before the record with Ornette, was um, uh, an artist named Jeremiah Lockwood, who's um, a dear friend. Uh, he and Amir go way way back and i've i've played in jeremiah's band the sway machinery for many years um sway machinery is a uh afro jewish punk explosion uh where jeremiah writes all the music he sings in medieval hebrew sings in english it's kind of like stacks soul funk but with a little more punk and and greatly influenced by uh, uh by the music of molly uh, we actually we, when we pilgrimaged to Mali, we played the festival in the desert, um, and we collaborated very closely with uh, for a couple of years with uh, Hira Arbi, who's a renowned uh, Malian singer. Um, so anyway, Jeremiah had his solo um, uh, Piedmont blues record um, on on system dialing. We actually have a follow up record, which is mostly his original compositions. But Jeremiah is a uh, virtuoso finger picker uh, in the Piedmont blues tradition. He uh, apprenticed for. Uh, decades with uh, Carolina Slim, who's uh, actually just just passed away. Um, but there was a big um, uh, memorial in the New York Times for for Carolina and actually um, highlighting his relationship with this young grandson of a of a cantor who, <laughs> you know, just picked up the guitar and uh, at the knee of, of Carolina and became like a, a holder of hundreds of American traditional and blues songs. So um, Jeremiah is actually the first outside artist whose uh, record we, we put out um, and then uh, featuring Ornette on the new vocabulary. And the new, the new one coming out is called uh, Drum for Your Life um, by uh, our uh, in-house percussion ensemble, Pop It. Uh, so it's um, you know, upwards of nine percussionists playing Amir's and my kind of uh, symphonic percussion suite ideas um and uh actually sa and gauja who played fela is featured uh, on vocals on a couple of those tunes mm-hmm. really deep beautiful uh polyrhythmic um party tunes uh but you know very dark sonorous kind of stuff and um uh yeah so so pop it's coming out sometime in the next six weeks maybe uh maybe maybe september depending on when we're going to do the record release we did jeremiah's record release party at jazz at lincoln center and we're trying to arrange the same thing for pop it um so uh but yeah sometime certainly 
before too late this fall, Pop It will be, uh, will, a Drum for Your Life will be out on System Dialing Records. And that's a record we've been working on for since 2010. So I'm really, really excited about that. I believe very deeply in the music on that record. Is, is anything cooking for Antibalas? Yeah, well, uh, let's see. I mean, we, we were just the house band for the David Byrne tribute at Carnegie Hall. Um, we were the house band for the Paul Simon tribute last year. And uh, they had us back to um, to be the house band for the David Byrne tribute this year. That was just a couple of months ago. Um, and otherwise, it's a, it's a nice, light summer touring fair. You know, we're going to do um, do a bunch of dates in Canada, some, some jazz festivals in Canada, some festivals around Canada, and uh, a couple of things down south. Um, but yeah, that's that's about it. We, we just got back from Tokyo. We were at the Blue Note for three nights in Tokyo, uh, having just the the best experience i mean the most wonderful treatment you can imagine like as far as playing clubs and i don't care if i never play another club again you know really (laughs) but playing the blue note in tokyo was so much fun they're so they just they they really respect the experience i think that the art that they want the artists to have um I imagine the sound is stellar there first of all the sound is incredible it's the best sound i've ever experienced in a club hands down in between every set the mixing engineer, I'm sorry, the, the monitoring engineer, the front of house guy, and the lighting engineer would come backstage and ask everybody in the band if everything was okay. <laughs> in between every set. It's like, what are you guys doing back here? Everything's great. Like, yes, and thank, thank you for asking. But like, wow, I mean, I've never experienced that. And, you know, you, you, you walk down the, uh, the kitchen hallway to the stage and, and everybody in the kitchen stops and is applauding as you, as you come on and off the stage. You know, the whole, the bar staff like begins the applause as you begin approaching the stage. I mean, they really like... And then, you know, you come off stage and there's that row of people with the towels and the water and, you know, they have like the whole merch thing down to a science. You know, you're there signing. They have somebody taking pictures, ushering the, the, the crowd along. I mean, it's it's really, you know, for a corporate venue, it is spot on and it puts the Blue Note in New York to shame, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> wow. Um, is, there, is there anything else you want to touch on before we go? Um, no, I'd, I'd like answering your questions. If I have to come up with anything on my own, it's just it's going to go in, in in twenty different directions. So, I, yeah, please. Oh, I, I will say um, I'm really excited to uh, to get to write um, some music uh, f- just on my own time right now. I just had a um, a piece uh, performed in a concert a concert by Orchestra of Our Time, who's um, it's just a uh, kind of a composers consortium made up of. Uh, of an older generation of, um, you know, of, of quote-unquote new music musicians. Uh, Derry John Mizell, who was a student of Karl-Heinz Stockhausen and, and, and a real, uh, like a genuinely prolific American composer. Uh, he was a, a composition mentor of mine at SUNY Purchase, along with Joel Thome, who was uh, a close collaborator of Frank Zappa. Um, so their organization, Orchestra of Our Time, just had a, a concert down at uh, the Tenri Cultural Institute. It's a Japanese cultural institute, uh, coincidentally right next to the new school on 13th Street. So I had a, a new piece for viola and pianos just premiered a few days ago. And um, so it's gotten me uh, excited to keep writing every day. And I'm, I'm working on a uh, an opera which is going to be uh oh, take really? take most of the next two years to uh can you tell us what, what, what the topic is I, I can't really because it's um it's almost almost unbelievable to me it's inconceivable to me that like a a, a uh, an established american operatic composer has not taken this role and this story <laughs> on uh so i'm keeping it a little bit under wraps but um but i'm working with a, a former student who co-founded an, um, an organization called loft opera which does classical operas in uh industrial loft spaces wow. and uh so they're on their uh, they're in their third season uh, they've just did their their sixth um production um, they did uh lucrezia borgia by donizetti and uh, i got to actually perform in that as well and um they're doing great work, so I'm hoping that uh, we're going to um, be working together on on maybe uh, doing contemporary uh, works with uh, with this ensemble. But uh, Dean Buck, who's their conductor and a former student of mine, is going to be my music director, and so it'll, it'll take a couple of years, but it's going to be uh, really fun and and not a conventional kind of uh, operatic uh, experience. Is, is it a is it a modern story? Can you it, it's it's a contemporary story. Yeah, it's it's going to be set in uh, 1970s New York, so there's going to be plenty of grit. And uh, but it's also got all of those necessary um, classical opera touchstones, you know, uh, drama and emotion and, uh, you know, larger than life characters and, you know, death and betrayal and everything. (laughs) 
can I just say thank you so much for having me and this has been such a um, such a pleasurable and and uh, natural flow to this conversation oh, thank I really you. appreciate it thank you. you so much it's yeah. a great meeting and yeah. great talking Pleasure's to you mine. and, uh, and uh, you. I look forward to hearing uh, everything else that comes along one two three four that's it for our show thanks again to Jordan for being such a mensch and taking time out of his vacation to talk to us Antibalas will be playing a handful of festivals this summer. Check their website for details. Check out more of McLean's work over at systemdialingrecords.com. Catch past episodes of Fun to Know at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch me spinning jazz Monday from 11 a.m. EST on WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at falker.com. And check back in two weeks for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.